Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I started my business via to help women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sarah Colin, to our show today. Sarah is the founder and CEO of GEM. GEM vitamins are bite-sized vitamin chews made from whole foods, and they contain over 20 whole plant-derived ingredients, including key vitamins, minerals, herbs, prebiotics, and probiotics. The inspiration for GEM stemmed from Sarah's own personal health journey. When she got sick in her late 20s, she was shocked to find out that she was nutrient deficient. She was taking all her supplements, eating the rainbow and eating well, yet she still suffered from inflammation, extreme fatigue, digestion issues, acne, and so much more. With a ton of research and determination, she realized that the answer is in food, not pills or gummies made with synthetic fillers and isolated nutrients. She was experimenting in her kitchen and created the product that she needed to support her own health. Fast forward to today, Sarah has raised over 16 million in venture capital and has sold over 20 million bites and counting. In this week's podcast, we talked to Sarah about her entrepreneurial journey from growing up on a farm in Oregon to working with startups and building things that mattered. She shares the biggest lessons she had from her first startup, why it couldn't scale despite being an innovative idea, and how that business failure was the biggest gift in her journey because it helped her so much when it came to starting Gem. Sarah walks us through how she proved out the concept before putting too much money behind it, how she built a community on Facebook to test out her prototypes and the steps she took to find the right investors to back her. We also talked to Sarah about how the company has expanded its product line, how she thought about her subscription-based model, and the common practices she uses every day to help her reset and recharge, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm thrilled. I'm a big fan of what you're building. I've definitely followed you over the years. I'm a big believer in food as medicine, and you completely disrupted the vitamin industry so I got all the questions. I can't wait to <laughs> hear your story, but big fan of you and the business that you've built. So super excited to jump into Thank it. Thank you. You know, I did not know this until I was doing some prep about you, but it seems like you grew up in a farm in Oregon. And I'm just so curious, like, what was it like growing up in that environment? And what are maybe some characteristics that you think you took away from that experience that maybe has helped you become the woman that you are today? Such a great question. I always you know, qualify. It was a not-for-profit farm. So it was just like, a, I grew up on a lot of land with a lot of animals, like every animal you could ever imagine. But um, it taught me so many things. I think first and foremost, I had chores every single day since I, like, since before I can remember. So every day, since I was a little girl, I had chores and daily responsibilities on the farm and things I, I had to go outside and do. And so it taught me, you know, perseverance and grit from a very young age what it's like to work hard. And also, you know, being on a farm, there's a lot of unexpected things that happen. And so it taught me resourcefulness as well, right? Problem solving. But I think like there's sort of this intangible of just being out in nature that I love so dearly about my childhood that is so important to me of just, you know, being with plants and animals and getting outside and being one with nature, a very Oregonian childhood. But I think that that certainly like stuck with me throughout my life, right? Like I make an effort to get outside, to get, you know, to be out in nature as much as possible. And so I think that is something that really has stuck with me. Yeah, I love that. I love that, you know, growing up, you had chores, you learned the power of hard work and <laughs> impact and yeah. grit. And I know in entrepreneurship, which we'll get in into, it's not really a straight path. So I'm sure you saw so many different things growing up. I'm kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but I'm just curious, you know, I know you're here in Los Angeles, you know, we are blessed to have access to hikes and whatnot, but how do you kind of bring that, you know, that nature interest of yours in your life? Because I'm sure running a business, it's not always- yeah. <laughs> Easy. So how do you break out and and what do you do to kind of bring that in your life? It's one of the reasons why I wanted to move from New York City to LA too is, uh, and yeah, we're still in a city. That's still a reality. But 
you know, I surf here, so I get out to the ocean. I do go for a lot of hikes actually quite often. Um, You know, it's not like the beautiful green forest of Oregon, but there's still lovely hikes. uh, You're still out in nature. And so I do have hobbies and things like that. And then I think, you know, the nature of my work as well. I'm constantly experimenting in the kitchen with different plants um, and, you know, fun, exciting things from nature. That's part of what I do as a business. You know, you're in the kitchen or the lab doing it, but um, I think there's something special about that too. And you're still kind of, you know, gardening these things. I'm not like a huge gardener. I aspire to be a huge gardener, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we, ha- we have some plants that I yeah. care to inside. Well, I love it. It's interesting because if you look at your life right now, it kind of seems like, oh, you're in the perfect place. Like your upbringing, your interests, you've really (laughs) built this business around your personal passions, but it didn't always start out this way. So I kind of want to go to maybe your time in college. I know you graduated and joined Venture for America, which is an entrepreneurial, I'd love to hear more, but it's an entrepreneurial kind of a program. And back then, you know, people weren't really talking too much about entrepreneurship. So I'm curious, like, how did you go down that path, especially growing up in a farm and then like jumping into the world of startups? How did that connection happen? It's a great question. My father was an entrepreneur. So I grew up with that type of mindset. I wouldn't say that I was conscious about it though, going to college, you know, very much was in the bubble of, oh, you know, like as I was graduating college, investment banking, consulting, like here are the safe, secure paths that everyone does. If you want to be anyone, just have one, you know, one of two options, that's it. And so I think my entrepreneurial, like, like entrepreneurship was in my bones, but I wasn't conscious of it. And then Andrew Yang, um, who is the you know founder of Venture for America, came along one day, my senior year of college, and did sort of like a seminar introducing this new program. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. And the mission of it was so empowering, right? You're sending um, sort of like top talent, recent grads into cities that typically struggle to retain young talent. So cities like Detroit, New Orleans, Cincinnati, Las Vegas, And the idea is that you're placing these startups and help kind of rebuild the entrepreneurship ecosystem. And I just love that. I resonated with the mission so much. Um, And I really have been a builder at heart Mm. since I was, you know, I guess growing up on a farm, right? Um, And so I think that type of mentality, it just, yeah, it sucked me in and ended up joining the program. And that was how I spent my first two years. I love it. That actually sounds fascinating. It's funny. Looking back at my college experience, I was a finance major and I remember taking one entrepreneurship class and it was my favorite class. I'm like, it just felt easy. It felt right. I was into it, but I did not go down that path for years. I was that person that wanted to be quote unquote somebody. So did the finance route, but I love this program. Like if I heard about it, it just sounds incredible. It's still around, I'm guessing, hopefully. It is. Yes. I was the first class. So I was the pioneer of that program. 2012 feels like a long time ago now. And yeah, there's, it's still going strong. New cities. Very cool. Well, what an incredible experience. And I'm curious, you know, going back to that time, you spent two years working at different startups, what would you say was really maybe your biggest learnings at that phase of your life, being in your early 20s, kind of getting your first time exposure to these companies? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was an amazing experience because they weren't, you know, at the time, like people still called Google a startup and like Facebook. And so these were actually real startups. Okay. Um, and so I got like a real fast track into what it's like to build and operate a company and sort of the grit behind it. Actually, after Venture for America, I ended up, um, working for a group of angel investors in New York and co-founded my first company um, called Plant Life Ventures. And we can go into that if you want. It was, probably deserves its own podcast, but really learned a lot from that experience. My first failed company, like, you know, failed within a year. Um, <laughs> and that was, you, you learn the most from your failures. Yeah. So let's 100% get into this because I know I feel like we need like a few hours to go through that business and the business today. But I think it is important to talk about because again, like people look at you and they're like, man, Sarah's such a success, but it's been a journey and you've 
put yourself out there and you've failed and you've learned to get to where you are today. So I think there's a lot that we can unpack, but tell us more about the genesis of this business and your biggest learnings from it and why it might not have worked out at that time. Yeah. So that was um, a CBD beverage company and believe it or not, I was the first CBD beverage company on the market. This was 2016, um, which at the time was revolutionary. It's funny. It's a big market now. Um, And the idea is something that still very much resonates with my company today, Jen, which is how can we kind of pioneer new applications for our health with these plants that are really untapped in their full potential, right? So cannabis at the time always thought of something as just getting high. And here is there are these other cannabinoids like CBD that have a lot of value for your health. And so how do we apply that and what can we create that's like accessible? And that's where the beverage idea came in. And um, so it was a great idea. And actually there's yeah. a lot of successful, you know, CBD beverage companies out there today. But I learned a lot about really what makes a company work is more than just one good product, right? You gotta have the the team, you gotta have the structure too. And so, you know, I was working with um, a great group of guys, but ultimately we were all not aligned in our mission, why we were doing this. The deal was, hey, you know, you put in all the sweat. And we'll raise all the money and then we'll kind of like split it up that way. Right. Well, but they didn't raise any of the money and I just ended up putting in sweat for a year, Oh, but shoot. didn't have the equity contribution to support that sweat, <laughs> so to speak. And so that's what ended up with an inequitable partnership. And I learned a lot, right? Like at the time I was 25 years old. So I didn't, you know, I was kind of naive. I went into it thinking, oh, you know, if I work really hard, they'll see my value and it'll all work out and be fair and equitable. No, (laughs) you got to negotiate those things up front. Um, And so I just didn't have it in writing, you know, these, the the three other men that were like all like 20 years plus my age. So I just, they had way more experience. They were in a totally different ballpark of their life and career. Um, They weren't doing it for the same reasons I was. And so there was, there was a lot of that. Um, and so I learned all of those hard business lessons very early on. I also learned about, you know, what makes good unit economics and how do you actually build a product to scale and not something that just works in a commissary kitchen? Um, yeah. How can you do that profitably? Uh, I learned a lot about raising money because I had to raise the money too in those first year or two, you know, when I was doing that company. So I learned a lot about that and and what that took. So yeah, I mean, a lot of it was like another kind of fast track of business school, I feel like with those year or two, even though it was probably one of the hardest two years of my life and ultimately led to my next company. But um, it was, it was a great learning experience. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I love what you said. Cause we've had a lot of women on the podcast and I've definitely been there before too, in terms of you're just like working hard. And you're like, oh, the equity will kind of happen. And there's just been conversations. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I've also learned is like, get that shit in writing, like make sure you loop in someone if you're not aware. And that's why I love having conversations like this, because we've all had our experiences in that sense. And like out of school, it, it, the real world is just very different. Like if you work really hard, it doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, you yes. would be the owner or whatnot, or the business is successful. A lot of people work hard like you did and might not have the right variables at the time to kind of make you know, a product out there. And it's so interesting. I'm going off in a little tangent, but a lot of people who have ideas I've noticed are like, you know, I don't know if I want to share it. Like somebody might steal it. And in my head, I'm thinking if people knew like business is more than just an idea to your point, it's like, Oh my gosh, I could not agree with mindset. Yeah. Tell me point. more. Tell <laughs> me more about your thoughts on that. Cause it blows my mind. So I love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think people are so protective in the early days and ideas are a dime a dozen. I think people, you know, a, a lot of the idea, yeah, the, the, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? It, it's really about execution. It's about all these other components. And I think my story and experience is proof of that. It was a great idea. At the time, it was actually very innovative. There was nothing like else like that on the market. It doesn't really matter. Everyone else came. You can't have an IP yeah. around a beverage um, positioning. Uh it's like coconut water or, or any of those other categories. And so ultimately it came down to your experience in operations, your ability to scale quickly, particularly in a beverage business. And um, and yeah, I mean, those types of things are things that you only learn actually by opening up and sharing. And so the more that you open up and ask for advice and share, the more actually you'll receive and probably be able to execute on your idea. So it's kind of this 
I guess, catch 22. I'm not sure what to call it where, you know, you're, <laughs> if you're so hesitant to share that no one can help you and then you'll, you're always setting yourself back. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. One thing that I've noticed and I'm cognizant of the thoughts that go through my head but like when you're running a business and I've realized this very quickly no matter what stage you're on you'll graduate and go to the next stage and there's so much that you don't know and sometimes and I learn by doing and conversations like this like I'm always reaching out to people that's just how my brain operates and how I personally learn and I know sometimes I'm like man I don't even like I might sound dumb asking this question but like that's how you get insights. And I'm just sharing that because I have insecurities no around it, but that's question. what's gone yeah. in me. Yeah. Like you're not supposed to know everything. So, you know, just a thought that came to mind. And I love that, you know, you kind of had mentioned that in your own journey, but yeah, there's so much that goes into it besides just an innovative idea. So I love that. So, you know, you're at this time, you spent two years of your life building this brand. It didn't work out. Was your next immediate step going into starting your next business? Like what was your mental state at the time? Cause I feel like I would probably you know, my confidence might've been a little hit. Like I've tried so For much, sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Like where were you? Cause to start another business right after it seems like an emotional, it just seems like quite a bit mentally. <laughs> I, I don't think I could ever do it again. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I always say that you have to have a healthy dose of delusional optimism to be an entrepreneur. And I think my delusion was very high back then. And so was my optimism. So, you know, all of my fears and um, my lack of confidence, I guess, was fortunately overpowered by my radical sense of optimism. <laughs> I love it. To be young. I mean, it's good to foster that now. But... <laughs> yeah. So, you know, around the time that that started falling apart, my last venture, I actually had it like, I mean, as you can imagine, I was very stressed out. Yeah. Uh, and I, I actually started experiencing some weird swellings in my face, which we never quite figured out, but I was having these allergic reactions. And so it sent me down this path of getting all these blood tests and allergy tests. I found out that I was food sensitive to corn, soy, and wheat and peanuts actually. So, and which is takes, you know, more than 70% of what we eat is made up of those four things, including our vitamins. I also found out that I was nutrient deficient in, in a lot of different things. Uh, and that surprised me because I've always considered myself relatively healthy. So, you know, that led me to the supplement aisle. I really haven't taken a lot of vitamins in my life. <laughs> Ironically, I've been a vitamin skeptic. I believe you should get your nutrients from whole food, which is, you know, the premise of, of our company. And so then that brought me to the supplement aisle where I was trying to fill the gaps in my diet because I was struggling with, you know, getting all my nutrients, but all of these vitamins I couldn't take at the time because it had corn, soy, wheat, all these fillers. And then worse, I like, don't like swallowing a handful of pills. It's just I know. Like, I gag on it. I, I find it just kind of like, and there's something so not intuitive, right? About gummy bears and candy as your healthy vitamin, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I took it upon myself to make my own concoctions at home. I started making these smoothies. I got obsessed again. Like I've always been obsessed with these different kind of new age plants, superfoods. And so things like algae, spirulina, I fell in love with, I started using them a lot in my smoothies. I felt amazing. Um, I felt like my health was starting to get a lot better. And then I just started to experiment and I ended up making this funny looking bite that I didn't even know to call a vitamin. It just had sort of all the superfood and things that I needed in it. And yeah, I mean, that's basically how Jen was born. And, you know, we can go into the, how it became like a commercially viable <laughs> product from there, but it, but it was really born out of my own personal health experiences, you know, my own frustrations and 
just sort of my own shock at confronting the vitamin aisle for the first time at that age. Yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, I'm deep in the world of wellness and I think I have it pretty dialed in, but I just did a nutrient test and I was like, dang, I still have work to do and I'm doing all the things. So I could imagine like you think, and also our soil is very different. Like you think you can oh, get it yes. from so many things, but we do need a supplement and add superfoods like what you're doing. Um, so I totally understand that. And so when you're creating these concoctions in your kitchen, did you think like, oh, maybe this might be my next business? Like, let me just kind of create something. Or was it truly at the time, like just to solve your own problem because you were in a bad space? A little bit of both. I would say, I don't know if it, it was fully conscious about starting another company because it felt so crazy Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I just came off of this experience. But like I said, I always had this sort of entrepreneurship in you know my blood and bones, I guess, since I was young. And so I, um, I think, and I, and I I'm a builder at heart. And so I just, I think it naturally came to me like, oh, this is something interesting. And I started out not really knowing what to call this funny bite, knowing that it was something that I enjoyed taking every day that it helped kind of fill the gaps in my diet, but would it help anyone else? Would anyone else be curious to, to try this? And that's what led me um, to kind of start, like it was actually on Facebook groups at the time, but like a small community, really a beta community to, to just invite people, have people refer their friends, try to get some strangers in there I didn't know and, and ask honest questions, do surveys, really see, is this something of interest, you know, to the world, not just me. Um, and then I think that response, you know, over, was overwhelmingly positive and, and it really, and that kind of, you know, being able to co-create it with people like that really spurred my motivation then to turn it into a real company. <laughs> I love this. And I want to underscore it because I think that is something people can still even do today. Like you have an idea instead of spending all this time thinking about branding and website and this and that, and that, it's like, yeah. just get it out there. Like, see, like are people wanting your product. And we also did yes. a beta, so I'm very passionate about this, but you getting, you know, X amount of people on Facebook is so easy for anybody to do. And I'm curious, and I love that you also said it wasn't just like friends and family, because I think like, you know, it's, you want to have different people. So how did you recruit people for your beta and were they incentivized in any way? Yeah. You know, it's hard to remember exactly how I did it. Yeah, I was so scrappy back then. I think I really just asked friends like, hey, can you refer someone kind of like in your network? You know, I, I went to like sort of that third, second, second, third tier friend, you know, like someone you yeah. kind of know more of an acquaintance, I should say. And hey, can you refer acquaintance of yours or your mom or whoever? And so it kind of just started like that, just really word of mouth. I mean, it wasn't, you know, so big. I think it was like less than 300. I kind of forget the number now. Yeah. It's definitely in other podcasts. So yeah. we can find it, but I think it was like less than 300 people. Um, and so it wasn't like, you know, so big, but it was enough for me to get kind of a real data point. And, and I also was pretty conscious about diversity, right. Of age of all things and also vocation, uh, where people were. Uh, and so, you know, I, I felt like I, I kind of self-curated that in a lot of ways. And the incentive was quite simple. Like a lot of people want to give you feedback. Um, yes. People yes, love to try products actually. So it was like, hey, be a part of this group. I'll send you free product. Um, in return, you know, you basically fill out this survey in the kindness of your heart. I'm very curious. And shockingly, like people didn't really, I, I might've had a little bit of incentive of like, maybe I'll choose a few people to get like a discounted rate for a certain period of time when we launch. I probably did something like that. But frankly, like, I think most people just are excited to be a part of a beta testing community. Yes, it's so true. And I, even when we launched our second product before we, I'm all about beta. Like I think it's important. Why put yeah. all your money and energy into something until you've tested it. And I will say like, people are very open to giving their feedback. And especially if it comes from like an authentic place, they know what you're building, the why behind it. Like they want to support you. So I'm just sharing that if anybody's a little bit hesitant to ask people, cause I have definitely been there, but you'd be surprised how people are willing to give your time. And I love that, you know, the early days of your business was all of that. So I'm curious, were you living at New York at the time still? No, actually I just moved to LA. Okay. So you're, you're in LA. Yeah. I just moved to LA, like literally right when I started the beta group. I mean, it was perfect, impeccable timing. I was moving very fast in all, in all realms of life. 
I know. No, I let the momentum was there in whatever way she performed. But so you moved to LA. Did you have a timeline on when you needed this business out? And were you working any other jobs at the time to like financially support yourself after everything in the back? I was consulting. Yeah. So I was consulting on the side, which helped a lot to financially, but I didn't really do it for that long. I had burned through all my savings working for free, you know, at the previous company, basically. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was really tough. And my timeline was, I, I actually didn't want to raise money at first. I really wanted a profitable company. I mean, you know, Sarah Blakely of Spanx has always been kind of like my role model in life. I was like, wow, if I could never raise a dime, that would be amazing. And so initially I wanted to just get to a Kickstarter project as soon as possible. Um, I did take some friends and family money in to be able to do that. So I got friends and family money in immediately um, in that first six months. And I kind of assembled a little bit of a team. And that was when the beta community started, like was in progress at that time. Um, And then I also, yeah, was trying to, I guess, form a Kickstarter campaign. But, you know, it's funny, the Kickstarter campaign never came to life. What happened is I ended up inviting venture capitalists because I had a very strong fundraising network, I guess, so to speak, from my last venture. And so ironically, I actually ended up just inviting them to this beta group. And then I got term sheets. So and then, then, you know, it's hard to say no to when you're, you know, tight on cash and at that age. So I was just, I I needed it. (laughs) That's the truth. Um, And I took it. And then, you know, once you're on the VC hamster wheel, it's pretty hard to get off. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions on this. So yeah. So interesting that you brought in investors and that's actually a very unique time because you're very vulnerable, right? You're figuring things out. You don't know what you're doing. Like half the time you're trying to make it seem to the investor. I mean, I haven't raised money, but I would assume like you got your shit together, but they're really getting (laughs) out of your business starting. So that's a huge testament, I think, to you as a founder and what you were building to get people on like organically and, you know, on board, but that's amazing. And, you know, it's interesting because you were saying, you know, at the time you were young, you needed the money, you blew through your savings. So, you know, venture capital for you was the right option at the time. And they kind of came to you for the business. And we talk a lot about this on the podcast, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Like running a VC backed business, is very different than a self-funded business. So how did that kind of change your mentality once you're like, all right, I got these people on board? Like, what were the next steps for you to think about a scalable business? It's a really good question. I think it puts pressure on you to scale a lot faster. And I'm a sole founder, but I've always thought of it as, you know, not anymore. Once you raise venture capital, you really do have other partners and stakeholders um, that you're accountable to. And like any relationship in life, they all require a lot of TLC and communication. So, you know, out of the gates, I was already doing, you know, monthly updates to my investors, communicating to them my progress. And I had a pressure with the money to to get to market very quickly to make money <laughs> and sure. to grow. Because I had raised this pre-seed, right? So pre-launch, pre-revenue. Um, so that did accelerate my timeline to market, but I think I already had that mentality anyways, just given how I started with the beta group, right? Like, let's just get to market quickly. Um, I'm all about co-creating with the community trial and error. I didn't want to spend years building the perfect buzzy brand book when I didn't even know my customer yet. That was just so counterintuitive to me. Why spend $150,000 on a brand when you don't even know your customer? So I wanted to get to market quickly. Now, there are a lot of disadvantages to that. And we can go into that. Um, but there are a lot of advantages that you that you learn quickly, that you're able to iterate quickly, that you do get to some kind of revenue and growth, and that you're kind of forced to work through a lot of it in a, in a quicker way. Uh, and so that was really fortunate. We ended up launching in late 2018. So really from con- like, you know, concepting the idea, I guess, in beta, to technically our pre-launch, it was a year. How long? A year, wow. A year. Uh, and so like 2019 was our first full year in market. So those first couple of months, I'd call it like a very, very soft launch. <laughs> but, you know, in reality, like that's that's the case. And I did it in less than a year. Um, we didn't really have a brand. I'd always call it brandless. You know, it was like black and white packaging and it was all about the product. Um, and 
yeah, I can go into everything that I learned and did wrong, but, uh, you know, I'm still happy that I made a quick move to market, but, but I think that ultimately that's what venture capital forced, you know, into your original question. I love that you said that you had a soft launch because I remember when we were launching, everyone's like, are you going to throw a launch party? Are you going to do this thing? I'm like, no, I am doing yeah. it like quietly. Cause you, you're still figuring things out. Like, yeah, your product is ready, but like a soft launch, I personally think is a way to go because you, you don't want to put fire behind you yet until you know, like, is the shipping? Okay. Is a product? Okay. Like what's the experience like? So I love that you also had this soft launch. Cause sometimes like I was just shocked how many people would ask me that question. I'm like, I don't come from, from the world of marketing. So maybe it's common, but I was like, I just want to get out to a few people and then more people from then and then more people. From then. I agree. I, yeah. And I think there's always more affordable ways to, to build word of mouth, right. And spread the word through like these beta, like Facebook groups and, and these other kind of communities that have come online. So to throw like a, you know, a 10,000 plus dollar party at the time was just yeah, like at the time unbelievably yeah. wasteful in my, in my viewpoint at that time, I was like that, just does not seem like a good use of money. <laughs> totally, totally. You know, in the world of food, and I know creating anything that's like high potency and jam packing it in like into your gems is not easy to do. So you clearly went from creating it in your kitchen to then having to find a co-packer. Like how was that experience for you? Because I can't imagine it was easy to find the right person, but I'm so impressed by how quickly like I, my guess is you found a co-packer and got it to market early on. Yeah. And I would credit my previous venture, right. With being able to identify what, how do I even look for a co-packer? What does that mean? What are the questions to ask? How do I identify scalability? And also during my time, I learned how to build a formulation to scale. So the whole time I was working in my kitchen with our formulators and with the scientific advisory board, we were constantly thinking about like how this could work at scale. I'm actually shocked at myself that I was able to find a co-packer so quickly. It usually takes nine to 12 months. So, yeah, you know, I think I, I frankly, like that first year is such a blur to me. I'm surprised with myself. I'm looking back, but what's really beautiful about that time is like, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any choice, but to go through it. Like I was already in it. I already moved to the city. I had already like had this idea. And so that the, there is, you know, no one else to help me, but myself. And I think when you have that type of pressure and that type of like no alternative, you'll be surprised what you can show up and do. Oh, amen. Basically, I don't have any recipe for for being able to find a perfect co-packer, but I think really being very cognizant about unit economics and scalability when formulating is important. And there are ways to do that early on. So interesting what you said about like the first year, you didn't have a lot of money. You had the pressure to get it out there. I truly believe like if you really put your mind behind something, like truly anything is possible. And it just shows from that first year of you figuring things out. Like there's Google, there's people asking questions. It's like, you can figure out anything. And even with my team, I try to tell people that like half the time, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just figuring it out, talking to people. And like, we've come a long way. So I just want to share that because not all of us know the answer. And if you really want to get something done, think about one thing in your life, whether it's personal that you got done, like it is possible across the board in business. Um, you just keep going and you have that grit and that pressure, I'm sure. I'm going off a tangent here, but I love sharing my ideas with people going back to what we were originally talking because it keeps me accountable. I'm like, I said, I'm going to do a weekly podcast, for example. You know, this is a side thing mm -hmm. I do for fun. Like I've committed and I have showed up three years later because I put it out there and it's like, I don't want to fail someone. So share, whether you have investors That's or sharing amazing. it with friends, like mm -hmm. it's good to have that accountability. So whatever way you can bring that in your life, I think is important. And that really That's helped a great I think, point. like propel you. It seems like for that first year, cause you even look back, you're like, how the heck did I do it? <laughs> yeah, no. And I think that's the benefit of venture capital money, right? It does hold you accountable in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I think a Kickstarter campaign or these types of funding routes can as well, because you're still putting it out there in the world. But yeah, I mean, I admire what you do. You know, you say something and then you know, here you are. It's a good skill set to have. And I feel like any business, anyone, you know, just like you do, you say something and you get it done. It's such a amazing skill set and so much can come from it. Like, you know, you starting your business. So 
you know, you've created this multi, I mean, I don't want to call it a multivitamin, like replacement, like a superfood. There's so much education that goes into that, right? Like people aren't used to eating something. I'm sure there requires a lot of trust to even like take that risk on you guys versus supplements that we're all so used to. So how did you break through that barrier early on? Because you really had to educate the customer on this new way of doing something, which is not easy. Yeah. I actually think I overestimated how much I had to do that in the early days. Uh, that's the power of having such a unique form factor. You know, we would just hold up the bite and say, your vitamin should look like this. I love it. And food as medicine is such a ancient kind of philosophy, right? In life where a lot of people would look at that and say, yeah, actually that is how your vitamin should look. That makes a lot more sense than a shiny pink capsule or a sugary gummy bear. And so in a lot of ways, our form factor inherently in itself was able to push through that educational barrier, which was incredibly helpful. Uh, and then the other challenge that we had was actually in taste, you know, jamming yeah. a bunch of nutrients in one bite. It's really, there's a reason why not a lot of people are doing this, actually no one besides us, because it's very hard to get taste right. Um, that's why candy tastes amazing, right? And so with for it not to be a candy without a lot of sugar, without a lot of fillers, and to have all those nutrients, it took us actually many years to get that right. And um, we're, you know, really proud now. We have a hero product that is our best tasting ever. Um, but at the first two years, was it, I, I had a very green product, I like to say. You know, it was a very superfood forward health product that was, it's, it's still the same product as today. It's just that we've improved on the taste, which is was a really big challenge and, and took a long time. But that, you know, was the next barrier. It's like people wanted it so badly. They believed in our ethos, but getting them to then taste it, um, have the courage to taste it was really challenging. And then trying to find a profile that could fit everyone's palate was also very challenging. Um, but we got there yeah. years later. Taste is no joke. I mean, and also it, it's very hard, especially if you want to do it clean. Like we created a, this magnesium product and everything is clean, no fillers, whatnot. And I'm like, man, like it is tough to push forward, like clean formulas, like whether it's more, it's more expensive, it's not easy to do. Some people are like, I don't want to do it. So I can't imagine you creating all these superfoods in like one bite and trying to make it also tastes good. Like I, that's a whole complicated like Rubik's cube. So I can't even imagine. But what I find so interesting too is taste is so subjective, right? Like some people might've really loved your first one. You knew it, at one point you were going to probably improve it, but how did you dial in the taste? Did you do another beta going into it? Like how did you narrow down um, that option? Cause I feel like again, everybody has their own opinions on it sometimes. Exactly. And they still do. We tried many different things. The first thing we tried was just introducing new flavors. So we did have a few different flavors of the same formula that turned out challenging from more of a direct-to-consumer business standpoint of having too much optionality for your multi. If you have a multivitamin, you just want one choice. When we started presenting you with too many flavors, it got overwhelming, confusing. Uh, it was also challenging from an operational standpoint to maintain the quality and integrity of all those different flavors. And so then we went back to the drawing board and kind of reformed the entire bite, including the, with the taste. So instead of trying to kind of fix something that was broken, we sort of started from the beginning. And through that process of reforming the bite, um, this was about two years in, we we then did form another beta. This time we called it our customer advisory board. So we actually used it, the same Facebook community still lives on today, by the way, from that beta I community. You can still join it today when you join Jen. And at the time we sourced um, to all of them are customers who are on there or at the time they were. And we sourced um, a customer advisory board of about 12 people. And their incentive to join was, again, just being kind of access to, to early product releases, you know, to discounts, things like that. Um, and also to, to be with me kind of in the lab, like going back and forth. And so we really use that customer advisory board to inform the reiteration and the, the remake of the original multi and that proved very successful. So 
Yeah, I love that. Going back to testing it out. And it's interesting because you kind of went from let's give people multiple options. I can't imagine on the back end how complicated that is, like operationally, like you said. And then you pivoted again and like worked with your customer advisory. I t- Was that to help dial in like one flavor profile that you would yes. double down on? That was a goal. Okay. I love that. And I'm sharing that because you are testing as the company is growing, right? Like sometimes it's like, oh, I would be nervous about coming out with three different flavors, but sometimes you do. And you're like, ah, that didn't work. That made it complicated. Let's go back to basics. And you still survive through all of that. So I love it because people want that perfect answer. And sometimes it's you like going through the process to eventually come down to, you know, thinking about a customer advisory board, thinking about one, like, flavor profile that would really um, be good to double down on. So I love just hearing the process behind the scenes. And, you know, going back to you saying, which I love to hear is that the marketing actually was pretty straightforward, right? Like people like food as medicine. It, it, it makes them question like, why are we having these supplements? But how did you create the awareness? Was social really big for you guys? Or what really were those pillars that you pulled early on? Because as you mentioned, as a VC-backed company, you need to have like traction very early on. So what really worked for you at that time? We certainly invested in our social channels at that time. And that included organic and paid. So we did start spending money. This was you know pre-iOS rollout at the time. So our CACs were a lot more affordable back then. And we, yeah, so, so we did both paid and organic. Um, and we, we built a pretty efficient, I would say, and somewhat profitable paid engine very early on, which helped because as you're able to feed that paid engine that had kind of organic syndication effects, right, um, across the rest of the channels and other, um, and, and the whole business. So it, and, and of course, like any word of mouth engine, the beta community and all the community development that we did, those referrals, all, all of that contributed to the early growth. Yeah, no, I love that. And and I think starting very early on, you guys were always subscription, right? Were you guys always subscription? Yes, we've been subscription since day one. So I love this because we're also subscription and I can't tell you how many people are like, can you do what? Like friends are like, wait, why isn't it one time? I'm like, but the nature, like if you only want to try our product one time, I actually don't want you to even waste your money because it's like the consistent effort. So I get why you did subscription, but I'd love for you to share because a lot of people you know, I'm sure, like, did you get pushback when you wanted to take a stance and only do that from the early days? No, No. it it made so, yeah, (laughs) I do. I do feel like it's different times these days when people say subscription, but uh, back then the subscription model made so much sense for a multivitamin. It's not a bite that you have acute impact or effects um, like a caffeine-based bite would, right? And you feel it right away. It's something that is based on consistency and taking it every day. So a subscription model does make the most sense. Exactly what you said. I don't want you to try my product one time because like the whole purpose is building a healthy habit. However, we do have some products now that we do offer one time with our subscription. So this is something that has developed as we've developed our product roadmap and we call them bonus bites. So we have a sleep bite, uh, a calm bite and energy aid bite. We actually do have a caffeine bite coming out. And it's in a month. So, and so those three bites are our bonus bites and we offer them in subscription or one time. And the reason being is that all three of these bites actually do have acute acting nutrients that, so our calm bite um, has lemon balm and magnesium and a lot of things to help you, you know, stay calm. And it actually works like quite right away. Same with our sleep bite. It's a natural alternative to melatonin, valerian root, L-theanine, GABA, really great stress releaser. Uh, and then our energy aid bite, of course, has caffeine in it, along with a, a lot of other awesome nutrients um, like ginseng and kelp and great things for your metabolism and um, full body health. So those three bites we do offer as a choice because it makes sense for for what they are. But our multi, our hero product, our citrus ginger bite, you know, the gem bite remains as the subscription because it doesn't make sense as a one time. So yeah. No, I love it. And that's so exciting. I'm I'm excited to check those products out. And I'm all about like, it makes for me intuitively just makes so much sense to like eat your vitamins. And 
it just, I love it. Like what a great way to get a jam packed nutrient in like one bite. So it's definitely something I I'm also passionate about. So I love that. So, you know, I know creating a food product behind the scenes is there's a lot of heavy lifting operationally. Is there any, you know, maybe it was from the early days or recently, like a challenging time in the business, something went wrong, you know, something might've had a delay or anything that you could share that you overcame. Because I think sometimes we don't talk enough about like the behind the scenes and all the stuff that goes wrong, which is part of business. Um, (laughs) But anything that comes to mind, and maybe it's not operationally, maybe it could be, you know, something else, but. Just other things that have gone wrong throughout my gem career. Yes. So, so many, where do I begin? Well, of course the product, you know, the product stuff, I don't know if that went wrong. It just, it took us a while to get to a, a great tasting product um, that we felt like could really scale beyond its initial kind of evangelist community. So that was a huge challenge. And I've talked about this quite a bit, I think, in other podcasts, which is hiring, I think, is a, is a huge challenge that I was quite young in starting the company. I uh, hadn't had a lot of experience at big companies myself or in recruitment. I actually had way more experience in fundraising. I could raise money way easier than I could hire someone. And that's just because I spent more time raising money than I spent time on hiring people. And I you know, often say, if I could go back, I would flip that. <laughs> I would spend more time on hiring people and less time on fundraising. Easier said now in hindsight, right? Because I have the money now. Um, when you don't have the money, <laughs> you can't really hire anyone. Yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an easier thing to say now. You know, th- those are the types that I, I think I am happy that I didn't spend a lot of time on the brand. You know, we talked about that and really understood our core demographic and our target customer. However, I wish I would have paused a year in once I figured out that core demographic. And pause is like a loose term. Like, I'm not sure what that would have looked like then, but it would have been helpful to then build a brand at that moment because I did, I think I went a little bit too long in letting the brand go brandless, so to speak. And there is an importance to a brand, the emotional connection that you build, the way that you hook people into your mission. We were fortunate enough to have this really unique form factor that drew people in. I think I maybe relied on that a bit too long uh, and got away with, you know, delaying building the brand until much later. It didn't help that we had COVID and all these other oh, things yeah. that happened at the same time. I mean, entrepreneurship just brings so many challenges. It's like so easy for me to sit here years later and say that. But like at the time, you know, there there were so many other external factors that were making all of those things challenging. I know it's funny. And I try to share my own experiences because I'm someone that if I'm going through something tough with the business, I genuinely forget like the next, you know, two days later, call me delusional. I don't know if it's like a coping mechanism. So I try to share on the podcast because sometimes I even forget like, wait, what happened when we even launched? It wasn't that long ago. It was like two and a half years ago. People ask me, I'm like, I don't even know. Let me like go back to a podcast and see what I was saying. So I know it's a big blur, but I'm curious, you know, one thing that I've realized through my own journey is so much of like sustaining and being in business and you've been in business for quite some time now is making sure like your mindset is right. You know, you as a leader, you for your team, because as you've mentioned, like things are always going to come up. That's just part of the game. Like, how do you make sure that your mindset is right throughout it? Are there rituals that you do? Are there certain hobbies that you have? You know, I know you mentioned early on that kind of help you be like a well-rounded person and not overthink certain things. Like, yeah. How do you nourish your mind, your own mindset? I love that question. I mean, the real answer is, I don't know if I have any Magic bullet. Magic. That. I know. I'm selfishly <laughs> asking, like, so what do you do behind the scenes? Like, that is a never-ending journey I am on. But I, I do have daily rituals that I do, and there are things that are important. Of course, you know, I wake up every morning. As simple as like getting sleep, right? Yeah. Wake, waking up every morning, having a glass of lemon water and my gem bite. Those simple things: nutrition, hydration, sleep. I make sure I I actually have exercise, you know, I exercise every day. I like getting outside. I like moving. It's very natural to me. So I think getting some kind of movement in the the basics is what I always say. Like those are the most important. I think when your foundation falls apart, how do you nourish the rest? And it's really important that you have that foundation set. So I've been pretty religious about that. 
since since day one. Like people, I mean, particularly my bedtime. You know, oh, a lot of my friends yeah. know this. Like nine thirty rolls around, I'm like bedtime, <laughs> and off I go. I mean, that is like who I am. So, I I think keeping those things consistent is very important. Um, but also, you know, social friendships, relationships, um, business is all one big relationship. But making sure that you maintain your core friends and invest in those, um, invest in healthy relationships. I'm more of a social being. That's always been important to me and helped kind of like stabilize my mindset. But I don't know if any of those things have ever helped me not overthink something. I know. <laughs> You're always thinking, you know, like, no, but I, that really resonates a lot with me. And I think, I mean, I'm definitely the same person with sleep. Like that is so crucial to me. Like during the week, my friends know, like we're at dinner. I'm the first one that's like, I got to go. I got to go. I got to get my sleep. Cause that's just how I stay like mentally stable. And I love what you said about friendship because I have a lot of friends who are many years ahead of me in business who look back and they tell me like, gosh, I wish I invested in my friendships when I was running the business, like in, in the thick of it, because it's so easy to get lost and just be heads down. And then it's another day and whatnot. But they have just shared with me and reflected upon like having relationships outside of work is just so core, like critical because we're so intertwined with our business as is. So I, I can see that being important, but no, I love all this stuff. I love going back to the basics. I always tell people that like, they're like, well, what, what workout should I do? And I'm like, can you just focus? Like, let's just start with sleep. Are you sleeping enough? Are you drinking water? Are you having three meals a day? And listen, I know all this and it's a struggle for me sometimes. Like, did I drink enough water? Am I eating enough? So I always, I love what you're saying. Sounds simple, but it truly is huge and can be so game changing, but I love this. And Sarah, I want to end on one last question that I love asking. It's a new thing that I've been asking all my guests, but what do you think people get wrong about entrepreneurship? We talked a lot about many things. I think the through line of what we've talked about is the shiny ball aspect of entrepreneurship. I think a lot of people hear these stories of these wild exits and unicorns, and they think it was up and to the right in sub two years, I don't know, some crazy trajectory. And it's unrealistic, actually, if you peel back the layers of most of these successful company stories, you'll realize that they were in business way longer than you expected. They probably had four other products or companies before their time. And you know, it's actually very rare to have this shiny ball, whatever we want to call it, sparkly entrepreneurship journey. Um, that's just not the case. And so I, I think that there is a real, yeah, maybe reckoning humility in the journey that's so beautiful, but also something that a lot of people miss maybe when they think about entrepreneurship. And I don't know if that's the most optimistic note to end on. No, but it's like the reality of it because I think, and it's interesting because sometimes I reflect back and I'm like, man, I wonder if I'm like painting a bad picture about entrepreneurship because I love to dig in on, you know, different people's stories, but I actually think it only benefits people because it sets you up for like the real expectations of what it takes. Because if you start and you think it's easy, like if it wasn't for me truly interviewing hundreds of women on their own journey, anytime I hit a hardship, I'm like, oh, this is part of it. Like it kind of keeps me going where I don't overthink it. So I think at the end of the day, hopefully it benefits people because it's not easy, but knowing that, knowing that it's not easy for everyone, if it was easy, anybody would do it. I tell myself that like twice a day. <laughs> like, So no, these were all such good gem gems. I love it. But thank you, Sarah. It was such a joy having you here. You're amazing. I'm excited for our community to learn more about you, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.